HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer sur vin et venin, vin sur bière et delmenu. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I would love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme, what I love and hate about mid-century. Is it kitsch? Is it modern? Is it fantastical? Or is it practical? It's hard to describe what I love about the mid-century. Post-World War II, the boom of manufacturing and economic spending led to a dizzying array of goods being produced and sold in the United States. It can seem like we went from the dark ages of the war, cars were black and clothes were boring, to a new era of pastels and shapes and more. It didn't happen overnight, but looking back on it, I sometimes wonder what it would be like to make over my kitchen or my house to look like it did in the promotional materials for things like the Kitchen of Tomorrow or the Formica World's Fair house catalog. Of course, when people renovate, it's either a specific product of the time they're in, say 1968, or it's often a mishmash of what they like and what they can afford. Rarely is it exactly as presented in ads of the time. So there are sadly few houses left that have these details from bygone eras in place. I had a friend in college whose parents' house was built in the late 50s or early 60s, and it was a time capsule. Flecked wallpaper and copper, silver and gold for different rooms. A giant single paisley in the carpet of the living room. 
The fabric on the couch and the chairs matched the drapes, and there was a man cave of dark wood with a fireplace and a bar in the basement. The kitchen had details that also stick with me to this day. The wallpaper was giant stick-on pastel daisies, and they went up onto the ceiling. The center hanging lamp was patterned after the wallpaper, or vice versa, and the stove and fridge were pastel as well. It felt really kitschy to us in the early 90s, and we used to joke about it, but I really hope it's still exactly the same. At the same time, looking back, the mid-century was a time of ideas, the idea of changing out major pieces of furniture or updating a kitchen, even if nothing was broken, came into being. There are hundreds of variations of Pyrex casseroles, not because anyone needed more than a few, but because it became clear that there was a fashion statement to be made, and therefore more could be made and sold. In our era of late capitalism, I think we can trace the roots of our throwaway culture to this time. Even if the items made then will last another hundred years, the items made now won't. So I love the freedom, the design, the color, yet I hate where it's taken us. My guest today is Sarah Archer. Her new book, The Mid-Century Kitchen, comes out tomorrow. That's May 7th, 2019, if you're listening to this in the future. Thanks, Sarah, so much for joining me on Feast Years today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So how do you define mid-century? That's a great question. Um, for the purposes of um, writing a book, for instance, usually it's to zero in on a few decades and to sort of start with the end of World War II and then kind of drift into the early 70s and kind of cap it at that. But as you know, having read the book, um, you sort of can't understand the mid-century without looking at the 20s and 30s. Yeah. Um, this series of decades where um, you know, modernism was thwarted by World War One, and then consumerism was thwarted by World War II. There were these kind of big grand cataclysmic pauses um, in people's, you know, wanting to change, understanding changing style and wanting to buy new stuff and wanting to kind of change how they live or how they dress. Um, so it's almost like there's that thing that historians will talk about the long 18th century or the long 19th century, because yeah. a period of time like industrialization or the Enlightenment doesn't line up sort of precisely on, you know, the stroke of midnight, you know, 1900. Um, so kind of the mid-century ethos that you were talking about in terms of throwaway culture, um, that really goes straight back to, <clears throat> excuse me, to um, the 1920s when there was an ad man named Ernest Elmo Calkins who wrote a treatise about essentially planned obsolescence during yeah. the Great Depression said, there are things that people use and things that they use up. And if we want to stay in business, we need to start treating durable goods like razors and soap. So, you know, your car last year was blue. Now you got to have a pink one. Or your, you know, your wallpaper last year was floral. Now you got to have geometrics. And so to get people thinking about what used to be durable goods as consumables yeah. that every year is different or better or cool or, you know, now with more whitening power, um, <laughs> you, you know, you have to kind of start changing people's mentality. And that was sort of in full flower in the 50s and 60s, but its roots go go back a ways. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to kind of like become aware of that as a consumer. I mean, the book that he wrote was called Consumer Engineering. Mm -hmm. It's frightening. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you sort of think about it and you're like, oh God, I mean, but let I me mean, look it at was, look It's at like the Southern strategy. It was yeah. planned. I mean, yeah. look, at, look at companies though. I mean, even now, I mean, look at companies like Casper. Yeah, absolutely. Right, I mean, you know, and probably some people would argue that people don't replace their mattresses often enough mm -hmm. um, and that you get a better night's sleep. But the fact is they've created an entire industry where there wasn't really. Absolutely. Or sort of the industry of kind of needing a new phone every 18 months or, an right. you know, sure. kind of needing kind of the latest, like, oh, it's a little slow, you know, it's sort yeah. of now, you know. Um, so that really, it transformed the way um, we think about stuff yeah. in, in, for, for, I would say, probably for ill. Um, we're now living with the consequences, sort of the dire consequences of all of that. Um, but this is sort of 
as you say, as you said in your introduction, that it really is also coupled with a kind of sunny optimism that's in very short supply in yeah. our in current society. So there's something very appealing about that. And I think that's one reason why people gravitate to that, the, the design of that time period. And I love, I mean, in the book you cover, you know, a lot of these things that we think of as mid-century very classically, right? Like Pyrex, mm-hmm. um, you know, Pyrex bakeware actually premiered much, much earlier in 1915. It was all clear back then. And and the story, as you recounted in the book, is that uh, the wife of one of the engineers at the glass factory took the cutoff piece of a battery, right? Yeah, a a casing. It was a casing casing for a lantern. lantern. It was sort of for a durable lantern. It was sort of like, could I I bake in this? And and she did. Yeah. (laughs) And 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 then obviously there was industrial design that came in later with the the colors and the patterns and all that kind of stuff. And there's a wonderful book called... um, uh, Imagining Consumers by the historian Regina Blasek, who writes all about, goes into it, like a really fascinating deep dive about Pyrex and the fact that she writes P- Pyrex was around for a long time, but it wasn't this like sort of global phenomenon until they started introducing color and right. pattern. And then once it was sort of like the, the next year's pattern, kind of the way there was sort of a new model car, yeah. then it became kind of this collectible, like, oh, it's new and different, or there's a whole new colorway, yeah. or, you know. And then other other items, I think, uh, become opportunity for materials, right? Mm-hmm. So you look at something like Formica or something like Tupperware. Absolutely. You talk about in the book how both of those were actually industrial materials yeah. that someone realized could be used for something else. Absolutely, right? yeah. And Tupperware is a great example of that, too, because it's kind of like we are so surrounded by plastic and that kind of plasticky smell that every time, you know, you open a new shower curtain liner or something, it's that kind of whiff that we are unfortunately used to. And it's unfortunate because it's really bad. I mean, very, <laughs> very I mean, very sadly in, in my house, we refer that to smelling like China. Ex- I mean, right. Which it is. is. I, know, I mean, like, you're not, not culturally appropriate. We shouldn't say, say, but it's, it's kind of true. But, you know, <laughs> it I is. mean, it's like when you open that package, right? right. That, it's that whoosh. air yeah. went in that package somewhere. That sort of PVC. Sm- yeah, yeah. It's that, that smell. And it's, um, People were not used to that in 1950, you know, 1947, right. when they first started, you know, they, the very uh, beginning of the, the Tupperware revolution. Um, and so one of the reasons that one of the many reasons that Tupperware parties started to take off was because people needed to kind of see it and get used to it at home. They needed to kind of see other people using it. Like, how would I, you know, so this weird smell and the strange sound and the fact that it's kind of light and somehow not breakable and that's totally new and different and weird think about how weird that must have (laughs) been if you were used to glass like that was your only reference point um you know in every aspect of sort of sanitary life you know drinking glasses syringes everything was breakable um this really alien kind of strange material and kind of candy colors and sort of getting used to that and so now it looks totally retro you know even a brand new container looks instantly retro but it's but at the time um, you know, gee, is this safe? And the irony is that really the safe option is probably to use glass. Right. <laughs> As they were right, but... <laughs> Unfortunately. Un- right. Alas, yes. Um, there's some cool stuff. I mean, the, the book is full of... You, you managed to pull from, I mean, what are millions of awesome ads, I'm sure. But you really pulled infinite. out some yeah. that, are, that are really fascinating. One that really drew me was the picture of the Honeywell kitchen computer. Um, oh, yes. It's on page 175 for anyone who buys the book and wants to go right to it. It looks like a typewriter in kind of a fancy enclosure, um, but it's really on a page from a 1969 Neiman Marcus catalog, mm-hmm. which is what I really love about it, mm-hmm. because you can buy not only the computer, which is mm-hmm. $10,600 in 1969. In 1969. I didn't do the math on what that would cost <laughs> it's today. It's a lot. 
Um, but on the same page, they're promoting Helen Corbett's, who was who was like the Neiman Marcus in-house chef, and mm-hmm. she wrote a couple of cookbooks. Which you you know, if you if you frequent estate sales and Goodwills, you've seen her books Absolutely. for sure. You can buy her book for three dollars and ninety-five cents, or you can have a thousand <laughs> recipes from it preloaded onto your ten thousand dollar computer for five dollars. Right. For five dollars, yeah. And yeah. you can buy the apron. That right, the model is with. wearing. Yeah, so and like, the sort of lovely hanging plants and <laughs> yeah. fringy because it's very kind of hippy-dippy yeah. interior. The thing that I love about that um, that device is that it's kind of the, um, the absurd extreme of the kitchen of the future because a lot of the... The kitchens of tomorrow and kitchens of the future, the various different companies, Frigidaire and Whirlpool, that sort of designed these things, they were really almost like theater. They were so, you know, designed for World's yeah. Fairs. Some of the things, like the Whirlpool kitchen, um, little Roomba kind of didn't actually work by remote control. There was actually a guy with like a radio, you know, kind of directing <laughs> right. it to kind of intimidate the Soviets. And so that was, there was a bit of kind of uh, uh, stagecraft with that. And this idea that there's... Um, a point at which gadgets just don't help you anymore in the kitchen. What you actually need is counter space and time, you know, yeah. and you need it's that's if you kind of have enough of that, like a pretty good stove and a pretty good fridge are yep. absolutely fine. And the kitchen computer is enormous. It's the size of like a piece of furniture. Oh, yeah. And it held it because like a this sewing was, machine. it's size yeah, this gigantic table. like. <laughs> You know, kind of almost like Kirk's chair. On yeah. the, you know, it's this kind of gigantic thing. And it was, it literally would do things like just hold, because it was the 60s, you know, probably it had maybe like eight bits of memory or yeah, something, or not even, yeah. um, hold some recipes. You know what else does that? A book. Yeah. And it's right there. You yeah. know, <laughs> sort of. So there's this, this idea that the thing that I find fascinating about that time period, looking at it from now, is that, and this, the kitchen computer kind of illustrates this, this weirdness that, the sort of perfect 10 of kitchens hasn't really changed much since the post-war era. Like the mm. basic complement of what we think of as standard. Yeah. And it can be super fancy. You can spend $30,000 on a stove if you want to, or you can spend 500 But, you know, gas range, fridge, sink, dishwasher, some cabinets and counter space at a certain height has not changed a lot since then. And the advent of sort of things to make seltzer or, you know, sous vide or, right. you know, all these kind of like little add-on gadgets kind of make it a little snazzier. But in terms of the basic lifestyle, it, do- it hasn't really changed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it is worth remembering that 100 years ago in 1919, mm-hmm. almost nobody had a refrigerator. Right. I mean, still. And right. so that, I think, is a really, like, to me, I feel like refrigeration is probably the most important. Absolutely. Like, yeah technological advancement that mm-hmm. we've gotten in the kitchen. Yeah, because it meant that you didn't, you know, it, it completely changed um, menu planning. Yeah. You know, you didn't have to be kind of racing out to the store every single day and kind of right. thinking, oh, we have to use this before it goes bad. And kind of, Yeah. So, well, maybe if your refrigerator <clears throat> is green, it's not going to make your life in the kitchen any <laughs> right. easier. Just having the fridge is like... Is, is like, is huge. Yeah, right. it's, it's super valuable. Um, a lot of the ads, you know... I mean, obviously, based on the way that our society existed and continues to exist in large part, are focused on, like, the wife. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're also interesting to me. I mean, looking back, it's kind of this, like, they're all from what, you know, might be the golden age of advertising, Mm -hmm. Mad Men style. Yep. You know, but they're focused sometimes on the husband with the presumption that it's time, that he was paying for these things. Right. Right? There's a Frigidaire ad from 1968 that proclaims, you get more wife and less housewife. (laughs) I know. Uh, and they're like this happy couple, like, oh, like you're my thrilled. wife, you're not my housewife. Right. Uh, you know, and then there's one that talks about a washer and dryer that can get a marriage off on the right foot and keep it that way. Yep. Which, I mean, I've been married for 15 years and I like don't Do really, you owe it to the washer I, and dryer? I definitely don't. I mean, I'm glad we have a washer and dryer, but like that's not... Uh, 
you know. Uh, and then there's another one that actually uses women's libs. So I find I, that I super that fascinating. One. The like, you know, the signs. Hip, hip ladies with signs that say no pot watching, yep. no oven scrubbing, as if these were the things that were really important in women's lib. Right. right? Not Clearly. Like, like, not like working. Like having your own checking or having account. A car, or, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, not wearing gloves to work like my mom had to right. in her first job. You know, stuff <laughs> right. like, you know, being able to wear pants. I mean, yeah. like, this is like, <laughs> yeah. but you didn't have to clean the oven like that. You know, they're trying to present that as a big deal. And then the one that I think is probably, like, I just imagine, like, a dark, smoky advertising office with some guy getting, like, all the pats on the back for coming up with the slogan, it's a wife saver. Yeah, that was pretty key. That's, <laughs> and she's kind of, like, near the stove, but not yeah. using it. Right. Like, it's just this, if you have this appliance, you can kind of drink coffee and be, like, near the kitchen, but yeah. you don't have to do anything. And I think that speaks to all the examples you're using are from kind of, like, different plot points along that decade in which everything radically changed. I mean, it it was such a tumultuous decade. And for advertisers saying, okay, so we have this post-war culture in which women are very decisively back in the home because men are going back to work, having come home from the war. And so we need to really cultivate this both for consumerist reasons. You know, we want to power the economy. We want everybody to nest. We want them to buy homes. Have children. Have lots of kids and kind of, you know, fill up the garage and all sorts of things and buy cars. And so on the one hand, all of these labor-saving devices, got to sell them because, you know, got to make money. Um, but we can't totally eliminate the work because that's what they're devoting their lives to. These yeah. women are, it's, we're sending the message that this is your, your job to make the home this, you know, warm, fuzzy, efficient hub of, you know, family, family life. Yeah. And so we have to tread this line as advertisers kind of, it'll make it easier, but not eliminate the work. So it's sort of like, instead of shoveling coal into a stove, like your grandma had to, or sort of, you know, going to the store every day to get produce, or like killing your, a chicken in the or backyard. literally like strangling a chicken, you, you can do it in pearls. You can, right. You're still doing it. You're yeah. still at home, but you can also kind of play tennis and drink coffee and kind of, you yeah. know, have this kind of genteel. And so that does a couple things. One is that it sort of keeps women where they're at. And the other is that it appeals to a segment of the population that historically would not have had help. But this idea that um, this new kind of person, the middle class person who sort of doesn't have staff at home, a la Downton right. Abbey, right. but is well off enough to sort of say, well, mom can, you know, is on these all these committees and she does all these right, things. Right. And, and my oven know. cleans itself. Exactly. So, so it's this sort of a, it's a new kind of machine to make a new kind of person's yeah. life. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, you know, earlier there's a there's a, a page in the book about uh, I think it's in the 30s a kitchen designed by the exa- by exasperated women. I think is the word. <laughs> right. The best kitchens are designed by exasperated women. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which I find very interesting. So like it, on the one side, we're looking to the people who are using the space the most historically mm-hmm. to say, what do you need? What do you want? Like you should be designing this. Yep. Except really, I have to imagine that a lot of these future kitchens in the in the World's Fairs were designed by men. But then there's something like the Frankfurt Kitchen. Which was designed by a woman. Exactly. Yeah. Which was, I mean, this fascinating example of this uh, woman, um, Margaret uh, Schutt-Lehotsky, who was um, the first woman to qualify as an architect in Austria. And... Um, in the 1920s, sort of um, was part of this generation along with Christine Frederick that were forward thinking enough to think, you know, we have to make this better for women. But it was so long ago that forward thinking meant we have to make kitchens better because that's where they belong. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of like we need to change the world so women don't have to stay home and cook. Sure. Even she, as a professional, qualified, credentialed woman, was sort of thinking, you know, this is the way that I can, it's, it's post World War One, we're going to yep. rebuild. 
Europe and make it better and utopian. Yeah. And that was the way. And, and they were they were rebuilding factories. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. they were building factories to make them more efficient. And I think the the Frankfurt Kitchen came out of that to a certain extent. Oh, definitely. Because she studied Christine Frederick's work, and Christine Frederick in turn studied Taylorism. She studied um, the you know the engineering studies of Frederick Taylor, who did all of these you know time and motion studies and kind of worked with um, all of these big businesses in the United States, particularly the steel and the car industries, mm -hmm. to sort of try to make their, um, the physical footprint of their factory work more efficient. So if somebody was like having to walk across a room to get a part and then come back a thousand yeah. times a day, that's like, well, why don't you just redesign, you know, make that part be right over here and then you can kind of, you know, you can save an hour. Yeah. Um, so if, the idea that the kitchen is like a factory for generating breakfast, I guess, right. or you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of generating femininity. Very Austrian, it's this very, kind of you know, kind of, it's like, yeah. let's make it more efficient. And, you know, that this, this was feminism for that time, like making, yeah. saving a few, a few hours off a woman's day. But the irony is that um, critiques of the kitchen, which I think rightly so, it was compact, so fewer footsteps, so that's good, but it also isolates mom in the yeah. kitchen because it means that nobody's it's like oh you don't want to help well i can't fit in you know yeah, yeah no, I mean, <laughs> so. it's an interesting point i mean the first time i saw the frankfurt kitchen uh displayed i, I want to say it was either at the met or at moma a number a couple Probably of years at ago MoMA, moma, i think yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um i mean my first thought was i want to cook in that kitchen right uh, you know being that i'm it's so cool cooks, it's right? so yeah, cool it's so and cool I, I love the idea of it I, and I, i've always loved like ships kitchens and stuff just like the efficiency of them and she studied train kitchens oh, she studied it. train car kitchens yeah but the point you make about it being isolating is very interesting i mean my my wife's name happens to be taylor she's an engineer oh, so the whole no and, way. And, and teaches <laughs> te you know we run the brooklyn kitchen and she teaches classes so the idea that there's wow. taylorism and that's taylorism really yeah really it's, it lives on yeah <laughs> Um, but you know, we live in an apartment. We used to have a kitchen that was very big and had a table in the kitchen and our daughter could oh, sit wow. at the table while we were cooking and Amazing. You know, it was a big open room. We was, you know, we ate in the kitchen. Um, and now we have a kitchen that's tiny. Mm -hmm. It's a little galley kitchen. And so what we've done is put a tiny little stool in the corner <laughs> so that at least when one of us is making dinner, we can have our kids come in and we call it the hot seat. Yeah. And we're like, you guys yeah. sit there, tell us about your day, show us your homework, but we're making dinner right. at the same time. But otherwise there's not, there's not that much room. That it's so interesting you say that. Cause that's actually exactly what my folks in New York in their kitchen, which is, you know, on the Upper West Side, it's compact. It's, I think it's plenty big cause I grew up with it, but yeah. Um, it's not kind of a suburban, you know, cavernous ranch style kitchen. And there's a little stool and that's where I used to hang out after school. Like my mom and I would talk and kind of, yeah, that's exactly what you're describing. Huh. Um, it's, but this notion that the kitchen is a place where you want to be is, yeah. is a very mid-century sure. ethos. So regardless of style, regardless of yeah. color, this notion of like, you know, it's school is over, you want a snack and like your mom's there and you're hanging out. It's like that kind of comforting um, I mean the Brady Bunch. Right? It's the Brady I mean, Bunch, absolutely. It's half it's of homework. That television show takes place. It's in the all kitchen. the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. Mm -hmm. Route Eleven Potato Chips is sponsoring these years today. Uh, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about growing up in New York and what your kitchen experience was like and that kind of thing. All right, sounds good. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. 
With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Diane Stemple. And I'm Elena Santagade, and we're the hosts of Cutting the Curd here on Heritage Radio Network. Featuring interviews with makers and mongers and everybody in between, this show is a downright funky look at the world of artisan cheese. You can find Cutting the Curd wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. If you're just tuning in, my guest today is Sarah Archer. We're talking about her new book, The Mid-Century Kitchen, which comes out tomorrow, May 7th. Uh, Before the break, Sarah, we were talking about uh, kitchens and kitchen designs, and you mentioned your kitchen where you grew up. So you grew up here in New York City. In Manhattan, yeah, where my folks still live. And uh, yeah, they have um, a great little kitchen, which I grew up thinking of as being normal size, because it's all I knew. And other people in Manhattan, all my friends, kind of had... You know, same of, size. Yeah, kind of that. I, and they live in um, an apartment that's part of um, you know an 1890s brownstone that's been divided up into five different co-ops, and so it was sort of um, plenty of space. And I'm an only child, so I sort of had the run of you know to do my various after-school you know experiments, like if you put a gummy bear in water, what happens? You know, yeah. that kind of important scientific <laughs> research like that. Um, and I. Um, you know, they had the kind of um, Upper West Side 70s uh, complement of Le Creuset, you know, flame sure. orange you know, <laughs> pots. And that's kind of what I was used to. Um, and also kind of got used to, I think, um, keeping things, you know, it's only what you need. You know, it's yeah. not kind of a suburban kitchen with like, you know, square feet after square feet of um, cabinet space. So you sort of have, you know, just what you need to work with. Um, and my mother actually remembers her own mother, who also lived in New York City in Williamsburg, uh, grew up as a kid, um, and later in Queens, going uh, produce shopping almost every day. And they mm. had an icebox for right. a time period. So it was kind of almost like a fridge, but not quite. And you really needed to kind of use stuff when you had it. So there yeah. wasn't a lot of stuff sitting around. Right. And so um, I now live in, uh, my husband and I are renovating a South Philly row house, and we have a, a lovely Ikea kitchen. Uh, and I personally view kitchens for me are mostly kind of a place to make coffee and like retrieve yogurt from the refrigerator. Like that's pretty much (laughs) like the grand extent. Whereas my husband is a very accomplished amateur cook and does like projects and needs counter space. So we're kind of getting used to um, living in what I consider to be a very spacious kitchen. I might, you know, having grown up, but, but he kind of, you know, is always switching for more counter space. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my thing is always, I, I always find it's like a constant struggle with horizontal surfaces. Exactly. Especially with two young kids. Like I feel like the stuff just piles up and I'm like, what happened? We had a counter And there's toasters and coffee maker, you know, there's a plant, there's the Chemex and the filters and the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, All all of this stuff. Although, although I will say, I mean, you know, we, well, we have a, you know, we have an open, open shelving and stuff, Mm. but I mean, in our second kitchen, we put in a dishwasher. We did not in the first and realized how stupid that was i right. mean a dishwasher especially with kids. With children is yeah, a really is really important thing but we have a 1940s uh chambers gas stove wow that i absolutely love it cooks oh, wonderful much better than any modern 
I mean, I guess if you bought like a thirty thousand dollar Aga or something, it would, would like be okay. That. Yeah, <laughs> um, but much better than cool. like your standard like three hundred dollar Home Depot yeah. stove. Yeah, um, it took a, you know it took a little work. It takes some getting used to, mm-hmm. but it puts out tons of BTUs. And so wow. my my recommendation to anyone renovating a kitchen would be, you know, to find something that was made. You know, I mean, so this is I guess this the chambers. I didn't see any pictures of chambers mm-hmm. in your book, but you know, chambers. Was, it was one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and the forties and fifties mm-hmm. they were they were a big deal, and they were the first ones to really come with color. Mm-hmm. Um, Rachel Ray famously had a yellow one and a red one on her set. Right, right. And, you know, they started doing color when stoves were just white. Yeah, that was a huge change. You know, yeah. and, and that was a, it was a really big deal. And and cookware, too. I mean, having been, you know, running the Brooklyn Kitchen, we used to sell lots and lots of Le Creuset and all this mm-hmm. bright color cookware. And I remember attending a talk once with a gentleman who, in the early 2000s, I think was in his early 90s, and he had wow. been, he'd owned a hardware store in you know the 1920s or 30s and been in the industry a very long time and he said in the old days there were two colors of pan they were either <laughs> white with red piping mm-hmm. or white with black piping and that was, and that it. was it there yeah. was no color you couldn't buy a blue tea kettle you couldn't right. buy you know a green uh, dutch oven like none of that stuff existed and a lot of that was borrowed from the car industry which in turn borrowed the concept of annual styling from clothing from fashion like that was fashion was really the first to do it um and that proved to be such a a fruitful kind of um you know reason to trigger people to buy new stuff that you know why not apply that same logic to tea kettles and uh you know and stoves and everything else and so the sort of the concept of um color trends the way that you can kind of look back to um, you know, just a snapshot of daily life in 1973 and the cars and the stoves and the clothes are all kind of in the same color palette. Yeah. Like you immediately know when something was based on it's like, oh, yellow ochre and avocado. Of course. <laughs> you know, you yeah. Kind of I mean, I like have recognized. such distinct memories. I mean, growing up in the 80s of like going to people's houses that have been renovated in the 60s and 70s right. and like everything being avocado. Everything is green. Including yeah. like the bathroom sink. Right. And the toilet. The tub. And like, yeah, the tub yeah. and the towel racks. I mean. All of it. Yeah. I mean, Whereas uh, before that, it's sort of in the twenties. It kind of looked like a hospital. Like everything was white, yeah. and it was you know the enamel and you know that just well, that I mean, had that the, hygienic. We, we had just discovered germs, right? right. It was so, that the hygiene movement. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then now, right? I look at right now. I mean, you know, it's you know, I feel like there's a there's a weird almost like class hierarchy to the mm-hmm. color of your appliances. So mm-hmm. like a white fridge is like what you have in a rental apartment right. and a black fridge might be like what you have when you like have a little bit of money and renovate your kitchen yourself. And then mm-hmm. stainless steel is like mm-hmm. the higher end when in reality, the cost of those finishes to the manufacturer is negligible. Is irrelevant. And that's yeah. the thing that's so funny now about color that I have been looking really closely over the past few years at, because I've been immersed in the world of colorful appliances of the past, um, but I grew up with a white fridge and a white stove and all that stuff. And looking at what people, what we just renovated a kitchen, so we spent a lot of time like wandering around Home Depot, <laughs> kind of, you know, yeah. wandering around IKEA, kind of looking at things. There's not a lot of color available. I mean, there's a little bit at the very high end, like La Cornu or Aga, like those stoves sure. are. Yep enamel in you know lots of different nifty colors yep. you can get you know tangerine it's like the and cel- you could probably even get custom right? you, exactly really, really you could probably ask it. for you know some uh, very custom color but there is a general movement toward um like what i think of as kind of the schoolhouse electric kitchen where you have you know marble countertops and perhaps black grout or black grout maybe a few years out of date by now but you have maybe brass um hardware yep. and a farmhouse sink and maybe a dark green light fixture and that's it when it comes to so there's this kind of the the aspirational kind of kitchen of today 
is has almost been kind of totally wrung out in terms of color, like all the color has been washed out of it. And um, which is so interesting because it's kind of um, almost echoing the dream kitchens of an earlier era, like a kind of 1920s, like real sort of clean, austere, um, almost like a lab space that also has, you know, a lovely marble countertop where right. you can sit with your laptop. And kind Which of- is a little, I mean, I find it to be a little too bad, right? If we're, if we're talking kind of bummer, about it being, right? I mean, the kitchen is always the place where everybody wants to hang out yeah. in any space. I mean, yeah. I was trying to find, I was just looking through the book and I found this ad from oh, the, the Frigidaire, Frigidaire from 1968. And it, they had this thing on the fridge called the magic of designer door. Mm-hmm. And it says it lets you change the front know, of your refrigerator whenever you wish. And yeah. I, I guess these were different panels that yep. they... You could install, but I'm looking at one that looks like chalkboard, and I'm like, God, that's such it's a so good cool. idea. Yeah, it's genius. I want to paint my fridge in chalkboard. There's an amazing video that I've been posting excerpts from um, over the past month called Match Your Mood, and it's an amazing... You can find it on YouTube. It was a Westinghouse promotional short, and it starts with a woman kind of taking a walk through like an autumn scene and there's jazz flute <laughs> playing and then there's kind of this refrigerator montage and it match your mood was a series of it was like their version of the refrigerator designer door concept you could have rattan you could put if you were kind of kelly cool. green and faux bamboo if you were like jonathan adler yeah. of 1968 you would yeah. have a rattan fridge or you could do something they called surtex black and Surtex Black had this very kind of James Bond, like there was a hi-fi and a man and a woman. The man was like wearing a turtleneck and they were having a cocktail. <laughs> right. It was like this whole kind of like, you can be a totally different kind of person with this different kind of fridge. And yeah. now it's kind of, as you say, it's kind of a bummer. It's like you just sort of get like stainless steel or slightly darker stainless steel yeah. or, you know. It's and if like you want to go really high end, you can now get it with like your, your you know your technology inside right, right? so you can right. have it like a what's touch in screen. your fridge you can yeah, yeah like which when like, it's gonna go bad or whatever yeah. i mean i saw one recently i was at someone's house and they had this refrigerator that had a feature that seemed so weird to me where like the door has an extra panel that opens up so like i think i've seen that so online. like you push yeah. a switch in the handle and you open the door but it's just the front panel it's so you so can strange. reach like all the milk and all the stuff that's in your door from the outside without opening the door all the way and right like, it's like why it's just like an extra piece of <laughs> like, hinges right it's like an extra thing, thing to break, break. Yeah. right exactly Maybe that's the idea. Yeah, Yeah, perhaps. Um, And then, you know, at that same time, I think there's this interesting obsession with like other food. Like Mm -hmm. you talk about how there's fondue that becomes a big thing. Mm -hmm. And there's all, I mean, there's a whole nother, like aside from advertising, a whole other wealth of like interesting print matter from that time. For sure. Things about the Orient mm-hmm. and things about, you know. <laughs> Exotic have, foods like yeah. from Sweden yeah. or it, Italy. <laughs> exactly. Right. But, but I think at that time, right, like, you know, it was not, not that it's available to as many people now, but like now at least, like I've been to Japan. Right. But the likelihood in 1968 that someone was almost could go to zero. Japan is right. like nearly impossible. Right, right. It's, yeah, I mean, I think that time period is... Um, Two things happen, and one is that the kitchen becomes a social space. And so instead of being a workspace where you either are um, working class or poor and basically live in a room with all your kitchen equipment and that's your house, or you live in an estate and there's a giant kitchen where your staff works and you never go into, suddenly the kitchen is a place where you want to hang out because it's nice and you know bright, colorful, and stylish, and you can, you know, kids do your homework there and all that stuff. And this idea of kind of Cooking and entertaining at the same time becomes sort of a lifestyle thing in women's magazines starting in the 1950s and 60s in particular with um, new kinds of foods, um, sort of ersatz, uh, South Pacific hors d'oeuvres, you know, all of that kind of the sort of um, Trader Vic's, uh, you know, rumaki, that kind of stuff. And fondue, as you're saying, it's kind of like, oh, come over to our house. We're going to do this kind of neat food thing. And, you know, you can watch me make it. And that becomes like a new kind of 
socializing for people. And then, I mean, I'm assuming that then that's sort of the time period where like grilling becomes the man's thing. For sure. It's, yeah, outdoor meat is always, is always, which is so interesting because it's sort of like, I mean, it it feels a little bit, if we're we're thinking of this as something that was created from the advertising and and sales side of things, that was sort of like, oh, well, we can't put the man in the kitchen. No, God forbid. Because that's what the woman is. So we got to give the man something to do with food because people are using food. We're going to put him outside. Just put put him out. Yeah, that's fine. Fascinating. Um, you wrote another book about mid-century called mm-hmm. Mid-Century Christmas. Mid-Century Christmas, yeah. Um, what caused your fascination with mid-century? That's a great question because clearly it has staying power. I think um, uh, it's partly that I'm fascinated by design history generally going very far back and, and today. Um, and I think that that time period, part of the reason why um, I just find it so pivotal is that, and other people do too, is that so much changed so quickly for so many people. And that um, there is um, this period of time when life went from being, you know, practically medieval for some people to being modern within a generation. You know, if there was, if you're somebody who's like the thought experiment I would use for when I was teaching history of design to people who are 18 and don't remember the world before smartphones. Yeah. Um, you know, imagine that you're a 1950s housewife and maybe you're 25 or 30 and your mother or grandmother remembers, you know, doing laundry by hand all day long right. or having to boil water every time somebody wants to take a bath or loading coal into the stove or having to buy groceries every day and make bread from scratch every day. And that the idea that like, you know, you start to understand why women's liberation took so long that, you know, women basically couldn't yeah. catch a break. There was no, there was so much to do. Yeah. Even if you had help, there was so much to do. And the idea that within a generation, then you had not only running water, but a dishwasher and a stove that you could set time to set ahead and, and, a, and a fridge and a freezer and you could, you know, wash and a dryer. You pull out your phone and, and you your can, groceries. Right. Exactly. Nowadays. Right. Yeah. And you know, that is a seismic change for a big population of people because of the post-war boom. It affected, you know, tens of millions of people. And I think one of the reasons why it's timely is because that generation, we love to talk about baby boomers um, in this political climate, um, was trained to kind of think of that as normal. Like every 20 or 30 years, there will be a big seismic generational lifestyle shift, and there hasn't been. The difference is, you know, basically, yes, you can order food on your phone. Great. You can kind of telecommute which I, as a freelance writer, I do every single day. Also great. But, you know, my kitchen, bathroom, lifestyle, general sort of day-to-day living has not really changed that much. Um, So I think the sort of expectations of, you know, what will it be like? And, you know, will we have this kind of Jetsons future? Um, People don't seem to really want that. They want, you know, marble countertops and luxury and and fermented foods, you know, as though we're living in 1910. (laughs) Um, So I think that's kind of... um, the gist of why I find it fascinating. I also, in terms of Christmas, grew up with um, sort of layers of ancestral Christmas ornaments. Like there was my my grandmother's, um, w- grew up and lived for a lot of her life in the Midwest and comes from a, a German-American family and Christmas is a huge thing. So she would go to department stores like Marshall Fields every year in Chicago and get like all blue Christmas ornaments or all pink or all yellow. And it was every year different. So as wow. a result of that, we have like thousands of, you know, and they they fade beautifully. So over yeah. time, the glass, the glass ones, they yeah. just become like beautiful. And I was just fascinated by these as a kid. And so I think that kind of um, the, just the material legacy and rummaging through it as a kid fascinated me. Um, and that's what led to uh, that book yeah. in, in, in a roundabout way. 
Um, are there, I mean, I know there are places, but can you list off a couple places where people can see some of these kitchens that still exist, right? There's the Wilson House in Texas. Oh, that's right. The Wilson House is great. Yeah, that is a good one. And that was the founder of Wilson Art for my which is a Which is a laminate, yeah. Laminate company. Yeah. Um, and I believe at MoMA... I ha- would have to double check this. I know they have had a Frankfurt kitchen on display yeah. at times. I yeah, don't, I don't know, know whether it's, it's permanent on permanent. Yeah, it may kind of come back and forth depending on what what's going on. Um, of course, it is on permanent display at uh, the Museum for Angebande Kunst in Vienna. So if you want to do that, <laughs> you can go there. Um, there are... Um, there's a museum, there's a Levittown museum, I believe there's a historic Levittown mm. house. Um, it's funny though, there actually are not a ton of great examples of this that are extant. The best place to see it really is to ha- is real estate listings, honestly, uh, is to sure. go on like cheap old houses, Oh yeah, the Instagram account, yep. look for the frozen in time abandoned yep. kitchens. Because the thing about the mid-century kitchen is that it, as quickly as it went into style, it went out. Right. So if somebody has been living in a house for a long time and, and sort of zhuzhed it and updated it, all that stuff is gone. Yeah. So you're better off almost finding it like in kind of semi-abandoned, right. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. kind of neglected. <laughs> well, and I, and I imagine, you know, there are problems with some of the appliances, right? I mean, Absolutely. in terms of longevity, I mean, the likelihood that there's a dishwasher from 1968 that's still functioning is, is, is pretty low. Slim. Yeah. Um, or yeah. a refrigerator, whereas if you go back further... Uh, at our space and industry city at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we have a 1927 three-door GE monitor top that wow. works. Wow. And is in original condition. Amazing. And all I did was plug it in when we got it. Amazing. Wow. wow. I mean, if they're, like, if the compressor dies, I know there are people who update those. Right. But whatever. But, like, it is still the original. That's incredible. Like, that is almost 100 years old. Wow. And still keeps things cold. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Made I mean, in the USA, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the idea that, like, uh, you know, a 1977 avocado fronted Frigidaire refrigerator is still operational. Is it was fast fashion. Yeah. You know, it's the equivalent of a, a Uniqlo t-shirt. It was meant I mean, to how be... many 1977, like, Chevelles do you see on the road? Not a ton. Right. Not a ton. Yeah. Same, same, qua- same build <laughs> same, quality, same, same unfortunately, issue. <laughs> like at that time period. Um, well, thank you, Sarah, so much. What's next? Do you have another book in the works? You also do a lot of freelance writing. I do. I actually am working on a book right now um, about cat culture in Japan. Whoa, very Which cool. is a bit of a left turn that does, will not involve a lot of mid-century. It was mostly sort of 18th century and 19th century uh, ukiyo-e prints yeah. and uh, Hello Kitty, even though Hello Kitty is officially not a cat. And right. uh, the cat cafes, Necro you know, cafes, necro yeah. cafes. So it's, that's, uh, and I'm also um, developing a project around clutter. Which is hmm. to be uh, to be expanded on, so that should be probably the cat book is going to come out in 2020, and the clutter book, hopefully, if it occurs, will will happen the year after. That's awesome. Well, yeah. thank you thank so you much. Thank you so much for having me. You can uh, you can find out more, uh, and definitely you should check out the book, The Mid Century Kitchen. Uh, you can pre order it today, and it comes out tomorrow. Um, you can find out more at sarah-archer.com. You can follow Sarah on Twitter s archer and on Instagram. Sarcherize. Mm-hmm. It's like it. Simonizing. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so S Archer Eyes. I Z E. I Z E. Uh, thanks so much for for coming up to New York and for for chatting today. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thanks everybody for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to Matt Patterson, our engineer here at Heritage Radio Network. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or pretty much anywhere else on the internet. Please take a moment to rate and review the show, and please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. 
food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 